Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. Okay, so let's podcast. So high level, everything is bleak and negative, but yet we're still all in good moods and having fun on a Friday. Is that how we're feeling? We should always podcast on Fridays when the market stinks. All right. Because at least you're feeling good with golf a few hours. (laughs) Laughing and crying at the same time. Yep. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of ESEC Lending Insights. It's been a while since the three of us have been together, but Peter Bassler here with Brooke and Jim, as usual. It's Friday. The market's a bit challenging. What else is going on, guys? What's going on in your world? My world? It's busy. With the Fed move on Wednesday, and it's effective today, 75 bips. And so you've got to move your book of loans by 75 basis points. Cost of loans goes up quite a bit. So you run the risk of a lot of contract breaks, and it's more operational in nature, but you want to get it right. How manual versus automated is all that work, Jen? For us, it's an automated change to the benchmark. But you want to, if you think about loans and borrows and demand and supply, a lot of that stuff's negotiated rates. That really isn't, we're not pricing it off of OBFR or the cost of money. We're pricing it off of supply and demand purely. So you want to leave those alone. But if we do different rate moves than everybody else on the street, or say everybody does different rate moves themselves, nobody's going to move every single loan. So we're picking out the ones we think that shouldn't move and that will still stay out at these levels, 75 bips higher. So it's an optimization exercise and then a fight with borrowers over what should move and what shouldn't. So it takes a lot of coordination at a shop, regardless of the size of your shop in the different groups. One thing we, we don't really talk about is obviously with the markets down big, it's negative marks and that yeah. is a challenge. How does that kind of permeate our world between you and the cash desk? Maybe give our audience a little flavor of that dynamic. Yeah, it's unique to the U.S. where you have cash borrows because globally, non-cash is the preference. But at the moment of our U.S. book, about 60, 63%, I think is the number of our book is cash loans today. And so you have a reinvest portfolio that has purchased products. So regardless of whether it's floating or fixed, you need to keep it funded. And so as you mark mark to market down, and we're moving lockstep, bonds are down as yields go up bonds are down and equities are down. So you come in every morning and it's like swimming up against the tide, just trying to keep cash flat. You don't want to have to be a forced seller, which happens in these stressed tail risk type environments, not this being one of them, but in those environments, you have forced sells and it's messy and it hurts your yield, hurts your long-term profitability for securities lending, the securities lending cash model. So what we try and do is just stay flat for our cash clients as best we can or as best they want it. In some cases, you have a lot of maturities on the short end and maybe you just don't reinvest that. And then you don't have to stay funded against those negative marks. But it takes an awful lot of real-time information flow and coordination, even just for one client, let alone for 30 or 400 clients. It also goes without saying that it's much more acute with some cash clients than with others, depending upon what their profile and reinvest is. And I think that if it's a program that has more opportunity within their guidelines and is already carrying bigger balances, is already investing out further, 
it's much more crucial to maintain balances and to keep their program as flat as possible. And other cash clients might have more tolerance for volatility of balances if they're just going into a money fund product with less individual liquidity concerns. Yeah, I think that's fair. Bigger is harder to manage and conservative is easier to manage in these environments. But when you move by 75 basis points on your cost, it doesn't really matter what you reinvest is, you're going to be upside down on some of that book. You will be. And then it's a question of what does the loan book look like in terms of where the rates are and where reinvest is? And are you going to see any drag to that? And if so, is it just a temporary couple day drag or is it longer? You know, yeah. yeah, no, I agree on that. I'm more just talking less about the rate movements, more about negative marks and trying to, to your point, like swimming upstream, just yeah. how hard that is and how much endurance you guys have to have on the trading desks to manage that. I think it just differs by client program is all my point is. Yeah, I agree. I think another way to say that is leverage programs are difficult to keep funded. Whereas somebody who lends a hundred basis points or greater only easier to keep. Yes. That's kind of exactly my point. When you say leverage, just to clarify, that's meaning a a large proponent of GC, right? Yeah. Yes. We say leverage is is a word that people associate with different things. So I just want to point that out. Yeah. The leverage in securities lending is basically lending assets that have little to no intrinsic value and then reinvesting it at a higher rate, which it's a mixed Nobody really runs a pure leverage program. They would just run a mix of intrinsic and a little bit of leverage based on the cash reinvest. But it's not like hedge fund leverage. But to me, it's the same from a management standpoint. When you're managing it in down markets, it's the same. You know, you're trying to keep assets and liabilities flat to each other every day. So how, how, how often are you having to pay up to keep GC balances in this type of environment? There's plenty of cash. So haven't had to do it yet paying up. Like if if you think of GC being eight to 10 bips of intrinsic value on the equity side, and then paying up to me would be something. And so you book that at OBFR minus eight or 10. If you played OBFR flat or higher, that would be paying up. Yeah, we haven't had to do that. There's plenty of cash, but we're getting to the point where I think the market's a bit saturated. There aren't new shorts coming in. The shorts that are there have remained in place. The new shorts that are coming in are kind of ETF oriented. So it's people just hedging out the market. There aren't new bets that things are going much lower at a security level, single stock here that we can see. So we're not seeing a whole lot of growth, certainly this week. I guess we're talking, looking at it week to week. And I think next week we'll see more of the same. We've got quarter end next week. And so balance sheets are going to get tight and the focus on staying flat. Most conversations we have with borrowers is uh, ends with just keep me flat today. Just keep me flat this week. And that gets you through that week. And then you want to work on growing market or wallet. It's defensive in nature in terms of what we're doing this week and next week. What do you hear from Pete Primes right now as far as what they see in what their underlying hedge funds are doing? Are they yeah. on the sidelines? You said ETFs is a big move. And that often seems like it when people are gun shy on single names. Yeah, it's a hedging slash trading vehicle. So you can get in and out of ETFs quickly. So if you don't have a long, you don't think the market's going to completely crater in the next year. You think it's just a bad market and we have a little bit of downside here, 5, 10%. I think we hit bear market today on the S&P and we're testing lows. So uh, recent one-year lows. So if you want to bet on that, it's just easy to get in and out of an ETF. Borrowers in general, Peter, are saying there's leverage is out of the market almost entirely. And so If you think of the markets in general as a zero-sum game, cash has to go somewhere. Yes, 
you, you mark everything down and there's billions lost in market cap and market valuation, but there's also sells going on here. People are selling out of their long portfolios, reducing the amount in their long portfolios. Where does that cash go? Into money market funds. And so we're seeing a big accumulation or we're hearing of big accumulation of cash pools. So to be redeployed later, you'd assume, but when is later and when does the leverage come back? I don't know. What do they need to see to say, to be more comfortable deploying more leverage? Is it, I, does it happen before the tightening cycle's over? Clearly the market dislikes Fed comments about future rate hikes. It sounds like they intend on moving another 125 basis points in 2022 to get us to a core Fed funds rate of four to four and a quarter. I guess that's higher than the market was thinking. So the 75 that we just went this week wasn't, but expectations going forward. You know, I think they expected a pause somewhere where the Fed would watch and see all this lagging indicators kind of, and all their measures catch up to the indicators. And now it appears they're going to rule with a heavy hand, I guess, is the market saying. So I don't know. It might be the remainder of this year where we just sit in a volatile, choppy market. We should have snapbacks when you have big drops like this and big pools of cash. You're going to have fluctuations in the market. We'll see it when we see it. I love to play the game, rewind the tape on Jim, because it's always a fun one with your predictions and what the percentage accuracy is on those. But I want to say it was like June timeframe, maybe when we talked about a shift, I guess, back towards cash collateral or just a shift maybe away from non-cash being as readily available because of just the market declines and, you know, decline in leverage, like you're talking about in long boxes at, at dealers. So just less available securities to pledge. But you at the time, I remember said that you thought come sort of October, that shift would bounce back. Everything though you just said in terms of cash is still everywhere, leverage is very low. I presume now that you would say something different and you're thinking it's still probably a while before we see a shift back in terms of the allocation of where people have a preference for collateral. I think so. Yeah. I think there's more cash in the market than I at least anticipated and and more cash, enough cash and enough rate on that cash where it doesn't make economic sense nor is there as great a need to flip back into non-cash. So borrowers get things off their sheets in many different ways. They will move it to non-cash in the borrowing space. They can sell assets and swap exposure back to get it off of their balance sheet. And that's something they do every year end. We're hearing there's less of that to be done this year. Yeah, I think cash is around for the foreseeable future. That said, there has to be some window dressing that happens. And it just might be November, December in smaller volumes than we thought there might be cash for longer. So at this point, they keep raising rates. Our cash clients, if we can maintain and and hold the line with cash where it's at, there'll be opportunities. There'll be good spread once the Fed pauses, but what to say. And so our frequent listeners would at least know that we often talk about sort of our auction cycles. Mm -hmm. Obviously starting sort of a new round of auctions here in maybe, I guess, next week. I think we have an auction on the non-US equities front. Mm -hmm. So kind of now through probably the end of the year, beginning of next year, we'll be holding quite a bit in terms of bringing assets to the market for exclusive bidding. What's your viewpoint there? What do you want to say now versus what might we hear you say a month or two from now after having gone through a few big auctions? Yeah, so this auction cycle... No, I don't have any predictions. I haven't the slightest. I think it looks like participation in the international, specifically Asia space, should be pretty broad from the early indications on our our marketing of the upcoming 
options. But in terms of what people are willing to pay for the next year for captive supply, I really don't have a guess. We'll see. Plus, if I make predictions and they're wrong all the time, why would I keep making predictions? <laughs> Sounds like Brooke kind of hit you with that a little earlier. Well, yeah, yeah that's contact, true. With my rewind the tape put it like right, game. Right in your face, like yeah. Okay. Real, all right. Well, long. let's just all agree then that that's the value in the auction, which is that we don't know the answer. So let's put it out for bid. I think that's true. And it's yeah. like, it's okay to be wrong sometimes. I think totally, it's totally. You see, yeah. you write it's why people should not be relying on estimates, by the way, but that's a whole nother topic of conversation in this market, yeah, especially okay. Jim's estimates. <laughs> don't get me going on that. I will say credit and corporate bonds are particularly active and balances are high, spreads are low. But if you think about that product as a spread product to risk-free, which is treasuries and treasuries backing up now predicted more, slightly more than we had thought for the end of this year, credit is, you know, HYG is a good example of credit indication, it's at a 52 week low. With that being down and credit balances being up, I think that's gonna continue. So if I, if I have to predict anything, I would predict that we do well in any fixed income auctions that are coming over the next couple of months. Equities is a bit more of a wild card. So if that's at its 52 week low, what does that mean for the borrowing or lending market for that name or corporates generally? Cause I think I heard Mark at the board meeting say something mm -hmm. like it was a 52 week high for corporate bond kind of- balance. Yeah. Balances, not fees? Yeah, correct. So I think if you look at the price of HYG is less of a driver of the value of the borrow, and it's more about supply. So it's creations and redemptions. And so trends matter, but the nominal price itself doesn't really matter. So it's still pretty difficult to borrow and maintain borrows in HYG. And so you're getting paid pretty hefty to do it a couple hundred basis points. So um, I don't see that changing anytime in the last quarter. A good way to hedge along portfolio if you're negative, but you don't have the opportunity to sell out of a, it's an over-the-counter market. So if you can't sell all your corporate bonds and you want to own them long-term, but you hate the market in the fourth quarter here, you just sell HYG short. Last week, I attended an industry conference in London, the IMN conference. And in a few weeks time is a big industry conference in the US, the RMA conference. The theme probably coming out of the IMN conference, which is not at all surprising, is just about RWA constraints, limitations on the agents, limitations on the brokers, the cost of capital, whether agents can continue to provide indemnification, whether indemnification should be provided ongoing. We all can opine on that. And that's not what I'm necessarily asking right now. So that can maybe be a different podcast. I know that our company has a different view than maybe others in the marketplace on this, but so I'm sure that that'll be a big theme at RMA as well. But like, what other themes do you think the industry will be talking about when getting together in a few weeks time, Jim? Typically you talk about technology solutions and ways to optimize your flow. At a high level, everything you just talked about is balance sheet management. So I would think we talk quite a bit about that and ways we can match up our clients with borrower needs. At ESEC, it's a little bit different because we run each client individually. And so I'll go down there and have conversations about different client profiles and our clients' needs and see who they match up with on the broker side. But I, in general, just hit the high level basic. It's not a whole lot of flow. We'll get color from each. The large PBs are the best to give us kind of flow that they see and changes from their aggregated hedge fund base over the last couple of months of what they think is going to happen going forward. We'll talk about auctions quite a bit. One's coming up, one's in the spring because it's an opportunity. And you set the table for what you're going to do with those brokers, each of them in 2023. So we kind of say, well, what are our targets? Where can we add value? And 
from an ESEC standpoint, it, it really is just matching up clients. Anybody that client A isn't doing business with broker B, then we try and make that connection. Say, why isn't this the case? And what are your needs? And well, these are my needs, that kind of thing. So just like every other conference, pretty much the same every year. The only thing that changes is we get a year older. And Brooke, aren't you on a panel? What's the topic of your panel? It's actually a very good question. Yes, I am on a panel. And it's it's much about what Jim just said. It's probably about optimizing revenue efficiencies of that, different trade opportunities that brokers are seeking. I'm probably coming at it purely just with the perspective of what the beneficial owner's viewpoint is on a lot of this, but it's probably an extension of what Jim just said, which is how do you help the broker community with their balance sheet management? And how do you then pair that up with the right client profile, what they can do with their assets, what their risk appetite is, et cetera, to try to solution. So yeah, I clearly need to do some studying on my panel topic before then. Speaking of appetite for attention span, maybe we'll wrap this thing up and call it a day. How was that? Hold on. Where was the appetite for attention span? Is that just recognizing that you don't have one right now? The risk appetite. So I was like, oh, okay. I'm, worried about, I'm worried about our viewers' appetite for continuing this conversation. All right. <laughs> kind of about my appetite and attention span. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different podcast uh, for sure. Yeah. I want to say to the both of you that I appreciate you both taking the time today to have this conversation. Yeah, you, uh. Brooke likes to complain that we always cancel on her. So. Well, you tried to today. There's a reason why I do that. Yeah. Azar, you tried to weasel out of this again today? He did. And I told him that you were already committed. Yeah. We need to talk about this, Brooke. Maybe he gets replaced. I don't know. Well, to see. Please, please do me a favor. (laughs) Brooke and I are very dedicated to this podcast, Peter. And we see the value. And our two or three listeners love to hear from us. If you're not into it, I don't know. I'm into it. I just have various things that come into play that make me, you know, want to change the time. That's all. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Have a good weekend, everybody. Jim and Brooke, always a pleasure. Same. Have a good weekend. Thanks, folks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.